This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I'll be your host. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. We've got a great one for you, episode 267, entitled Isaiah's Fourth Servant Song. Yes, we've worked through the first three of the Isianic Servant Songs, that is these passages within Isaiah 40 through 55 that came to shape the early Christian understanding of the Messiah. And this is in the midst of our larger series in which we look at the most influential passages from the Hebrew Bible that came to help people solidify their understanding of the person of the Messiah, his role, his responsibilities, and his relationship to the God of Israel. So this week we'll look at the fourth servant song, often called the Suffering Servant Song, and the passage is in Isaiah 52 through 53. There's some sense in which the chapter break is a bit misleading because the passage is not just Isaiah 53, it's also the three verses prior to Isaiah 53. So here's some questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, how does the fourth Isianic Servant Song define this servant's original identity, that is, the way that the original readers would have understood him. Second, how does the servant song distinguish Israel's God and the servant of Israel's God? And lastly, how did the New Testament authors demonstrate the impact of this fourth Isianic servant song in their depictions of Jesus' ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the fourth and final Isianic servant song. So our passage is in Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, and it goes to the end of chapter 52 and then all of chapter 53, which is verses 1 through 12. So let's begin. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations, kings, will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty, that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, 
and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offering, he would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through Isaiah 53, verse 12. So we've got this passage, and it is bracketed off with some very interesting points. So we could see that at the beginning, the subject is called my servant, indicating the servant of Yahweh. And at the very end, he is called my servant. We can also see a particular verb that brackets off the description of this suffering servant, and it's the Hebrew verb nasah. Now, nasah could mean to pick up. It could also mean to bear. So we can see that he is the one who will be lifted up in Isaiah 52, 13. And in Isaiah 53, verse 11, he is the one who bore or carried the sins of many. So we have some interesting descriptions here of the servant who simultaneously carries and bears the sins, but also he will be carried up, he will be lifted up in exaltation. It's interesting that the servant is framed with this very interesting verb, which seems to offer contradictory descriptions. Someone who is exalted, and yet someone who suffers as a figure carrying the sins of others. Now, we can go through and talk about each of these verses and all the interesting points, but I think it's best to really divide it into four 
key descriptions of the main sections. So the first section is 52.13-15, through 15, which indicates that the nations here, this is not a reference to Israel, the nations are actually astonished at the success of Yahweh's servant, despite the fact that he is disfigured. And so we can have a description of the servant, and we're going to see a description of others around the servant who are sinful, but here we have the description of the nations. We have kings in particular. The second section is 53, 1 through 6, and this section describes the servant being portrayed as disfigured. He is the bearer of the sins of others, and he is the one whose suffering is going to bring forgiveness to the sinful. That's quite interesting. The third section, 53.7-9, indicates the blameless nature of the servant who is approaching the end of his life. And the fourth section, chapter 53, verses 10-12, through 12, has God's assurance that although his servant is being severely mistreated, he will actually have a long life, he will be fruitful, and he will multiply. So there are some interesting things that are said about this servant. Quite clearly, the servant is distinguished from Yahweh. The servant is Yahweh's servant. The two are clearly distinguished. Yahweh is clearly understood as Israel's God, and the servant is the one who is carrying out Yahweh's plans and purposes. There's no indication here that the servant is Yahweh himself. The two are clearly distinguished. Yahweh is Israel's God, and the servant here is described as a man. He's a human being. He's a member of the human race. He is described as a human being in a variety of these verses. So the servant who dies is a member of the human race, and Yahweh is Israel's God, and the two are never confused. That much is absolutely clear. Now we can also see in this passage some interesting details regarding the servant's original identity. We can see that he is someone that doesn't have a very interesting appearance. He has no majesty. He has no stately form. He is marred and he is attacked. And yet, he's also described as someone who is somewhat distinguished from the people who have their own transgressions. Verse 5 says that he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So there seems to be another group here that seems to be related to this servant that seems to be an evil group, a group that has transgressions, they have iniquities, they have the scourging that belongs to them, and yet it falls upon this representative figure. These persons are also sheep that have gone astray. They have turned aside to their own way, and yet their iniquity has fallen upon this particular servant figure. So this figure seems to be someone who is distinguished from this other group, and I think this other group indicates the entirety of Israel that is faithless and sinful, but the servant seems to be a member of this particular group, one who is ideal and one who is 
representing their nationality and their interest. He seems to be the faithful one who is meant to intercede and bear the sins of the unfaithful. And yet, these two groups, this faithful representative and the unfaithful Israel, seem to be distinguished from the first category in verses 13, 14, and 15 of chapter 52, referencing the nations, referencing the kings. So we have a lot of interesting details there, which further support, I think, the suggestion that the original identity of the suffering servant was that it was a group of ideal Israelites that was intended to carry out the purposes and the functions of redeeming Israel in the midst of Israel's overall sin. And I think that the historical Jesus looked at himself as the Messiah, as Israel's king, namely the one who represents his people, and he was deeply influenced by these passages in Isaiah 52-53, on top of the other servant songs in Isaiah 42-49 and Isaiah 50, and Jesus embodied this role of the suffering servant on himself as the king. So although Jesus was Israel's king, he was the anointed Messiah, he also embodied the role of the suffering servant, taking the role that seemed to belong to the nation, at least the ideal nation of Israel, and now he has embodied it on himself as Israel's single representative, as Israel's king. So that's the way, I think, to bridge the gap between what we seem to see in the prophet Isaiah and the way that Jesus seems to understand himself in light of these passages. Let's move on to the New Testament. This is our second point, point number two, the use of the fourth servant song in reference to Jesus' crucifixion. So, not surprisingly, there are quite a few passages in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that draw upon and demonstrate the influence of this fourth servant song. We're not going to have time to look at all of them, but I thought I would give a sampling to kind of see the wide variety of the ways in which the New Testament authors demonstrate their impact of this fourth Isianic servant song. So in Matthew 26, starting in verse 62, this is at the mock trial of Jesus. It says, The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. That's Matthew 26, verses 62 through 63. And this is referencing Isaiah 53, verse 7, which indicates that the servant did not open his mouth. We can see more of this in John chapter 19, starting in verse 7. This is when Jesus is in reference to Pilate. So, in John 19, 7, it says, The Jews answered Pilate, We have a law, and by that law, he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. John 19, 7-9. Again, Jesus not giving an answer, 
alluding to Isaiah 53, verse 7, to where the servant did not open his mouth. Let's look at our next passage, Matthew 27, starting in verse 57, which says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also been a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of a rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Matthew 27, verses 57 through 60. And this seems to be citing Isaiah 53, verse 9, in which the servant, once he has died, is actually present with a rich man, even though he was assigned the grave with others. So we have the reference to a rich person who is deliberately described as someone who is rich by Matthew himself. Let's look at another passage. In Luke 22, verse 36, this is when Jesus is telling his disciples what's going to take place in the garden when he's going to be betrayed. It says in verse 36, Jesus said to them, But now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. That's Luke 22, 36-37, which is deliberately quoting Isaiah 53, verse 12, that the servant was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus seems to cite this for himself in reference to others that are around him. Interestingly, his own disciples who are coming along with him with swords, which is why the command is given for them to sell their coat and to actually purchase a sword, indicating that they would be approaching the Romans there with swords, identifying them as rebellious transgressors. So we can see here that in a variety of places describing Jesus' betrayal and death that the New Testament authors are each drawing on Isaiah 52 and 53 in their portrayal of Jesus. So it's quite widespread in its impact on the New Testament authors. However, Isaiah 53 is not only impacting the portrayal of Jesus' rejection and death. It also is indicative of the impact on Jesus' ministry prior to his death and resurrection. This will be our third point. Point number three, the use of the fourth servant song in Jesus' ministry. Now, a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that the fourth servant song actually appears in references in some deliberate quotes in regard to Jesus' ministry prior to him actually dying. So here's one interesting example. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 says, When evening came, they brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities 
and carried away our diseases. Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, which is deliberately citing Isaiah 53, verse 4. So people might think that Jesus took our infirmities and carried away our diseases on the cross, and yet we could see Jesus already doing this in the middle of his ministry. Probably not unlike the theology of the kingdom of God, which is something that happens at the end, but it also breaks into history for those who are experiencing and following Jesus. We have the redemptive aspects of the carrying away of infirmities and diseases happening at the cross at the end of Jesus' ministry, but also happening in the middle of his ministry. In John's gospel, we have Jesus claiming to be the light, and in doing so, the narrator describes the fact that Jesus is being ignored by citing Isaiah 53, verse 1. So here in John chapter 12, starting in verse 36, Jesus says, While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then a few verses later, the narrator tells us in John 12, 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That's John 12, verses 36 through 41. Now, Isaiah saw his glory because this passage in Isaiah 53, verse 1, comes right after the reference in Isaiah 52, 13, to where the servant will be high, exalted, and lifted up. But in the Greek, it says that he will be glorified, using the verb to glorify. So we can see here that Isaiah saw his glory, using the noun, and clearly the passage is in the context of a servant whom Yahweh is going to glorify. So when it says that Isaiah saw him, Isaiah saw Jesus as the suffering servant from Isaiah 52 through 53. That much is quite clear. We can see here Isaiah 53 being used to reference the middle of Jesus' ministry, not just the death of Jesus. And our fourth and final point, something we've alluded to in all of these teachings about the suffering servant songs, is the use of the servant song by Paul in Philippians 2. So Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is this passage about Christ Jesus who emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was obedient to the point of death and God highly exalted him, gave him the name above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar as Lord, ultimately to the glory of God the Father. And Paul seems to be clearly influenced by the description of Isaiah 52 through 53, description of the servant. And this is why I think when Paul says that Christ Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a servant, it's not just a generic example of someone who serves others. He took the form, he embodied the role of Isaiah's suffering servant. 
And so we saw in our passage that the servant is called my servant. That's Isaiah 52, 13 and 53, verse 11. And Paul says that Christ Jesus was taking the form of a servant in Philippians 2, 7. That's the first connection between Philippians 2 and the fourth servant song. The second connection is the fact that Paul says that Jesus poured out himself to an obedient death, specifically in Philippians 2.8. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Isaiah 53 verse 12 indicates that he poured out himself unto death. Paul seems to draw on that very same language and use it to refer to the death of Jesus, the king who took the role of the suffering servant. And the third connection is the next verse, Philippians 2.9, where God highly exalts his suffering servant. Paul says God highly exalted him. Notice God highly exalted Jesus, indicating that Jesus and God are clearly distinguished. The one who died and the one who was exalted is not God. God and the servant are distinguished. And Isaiah 52.13, we've already alluded to this, indicates that the servant will be high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. So we have very similar language there. The servant is going to be greatly exalted, and clearly at the resurrection and the enthronement of Jesus to God's right hand, his exaltation to heaven uses exalted language in Philippians 2.9. So three times Paul draws deliberately on the important themes of the suffering servant from Isaiah 52 through 53 to indicate that Christ Jesus took the form of a servant, namely Isaiah's suffering servant, who poured out himself to the point of death, and he was highly exalted by Yahweh, by Israel's God. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we move to the prophet Ezekiel and look at his vision of the Davidic shepherd. Please look forward to our next episode. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends on social media. If you'd like to offer a donation, you can check out the PayPal link that's associated with this particular episode. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.